This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Morning. It's Monday, February the 5th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, White Cane Week is celebrating its 21st view of what's on deck. Atlantic Canada is having a white snow week. It's being blanketed with snow over the weekend. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig will have the latest on the storm impacting the region. And technology is at an inflection point. Denis Boudreau discusses the rise of wearable tech and its accessibility implications. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. Top story of the day, Michelle McQuig is going to tackle this in a couple of minutes, but it's worth bringing in some human perspective. Atlantic Canada is experiencing a major storm. Several feet have, of snow has fallen across the region. Laura Bain, you are living in the Halifax Regional Municipality. What's going on on the ground? Well, you know, it's been a very blustery weekend, and I don't know if I can tell you exactly what's going down on the ground, because I am several stories up in my apartment, and from what I see (laughs) out my window, it's not a situation I want to become more closely acquainted with. It pretty much started Friday night and went all through last night, and there was a lot of snow coming down, but there was also high winds, so it was sort of hard to tell how much was coming down and how much was just that blow snow aspect um you know i can tell you it looks like sidewalks have not been done it looks like some maybe some of the main streets have been done but not all of the side streets i mean my parents are living in a suburb but in like within city limits and their street still hasn't been plowed out so they've still got you know several feet of snow in front of their cars so obviously lots of people not able to leave their homes right now and really like although it's been you know, it's a better situation downtown where I am without those sidewalks being done. I'm pretty much stuck in my house yeah, unless yeah. I want to Uber somewhere. Yeah. Or or go for a, a, a trek, which can be a little bit treacherous if there's lots of traffic and no sidewalks. Yeah. And I will say I did end up doing that Saturday morning. I had plans with a friend and we were going to cancel because obviously it was a blizzard, but then they had to come pretty much right to my apartment anyway, because they were picking something up at a at a drugstore nearby. And so we did go out in the snow and uh, it was it was treacherous. It was, uh, you know, my friend didn't want to walk on the street just because obviously that's a safety concern oh, with yeah. the blowing snow. Oh, yeah. But the sidewalks were like knee deep snow with ice pellets and snow hitting our faces it was uh it was a little dicey and i ended up when we did get to our destination i took an uber home which was of course double the price because of surge pricing but (laughs) it was worth it i did not want to trudge back through that snow to get uh, back to my place oh i I thought you were gonna say the the brunch was worth it well i was gonna ask was the brunch worth it was the actual food worth it uh at that point i think the bar was low like just being (laughs) indoors and being able to shake off the snow and like get Ah. food in our bellies but yeah 
<laughs> Laura, thank you for this. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will have a bit more of the uh, big picture update in about uh, 10 minutes' time. A couple more news stories to put on your radar. This is a big one in the sports world, but it's also just a big deal in general. Canada will play host to 13 World Cup soccer games in 2026. Brenda Molina-Navidad breaks it down. Of the 104 games at the World Cup, seven will be played at Vancouver's BC Play Stadium and six at Toronto's BMO Field. Toronto will host the Canadian men in the opening game on Canadian soil on June 12th. The two cities will each stage five opening round games and a round of 32 knockout game, with Vancouver also hosting a round of 16 match. Like Canada, Mexico will also host 13 games, meaning the U.S. will stage the Lions' share of the action with 78 games at the expanded 48-team soccer showcase. Brenda Molina-Navidad, The Canadian Press, Toronto. And World Cup fever will be explored as part of the Segment 7 roundtable. Alex Smythe is going to bring that conversation to you via myself, Ramya Amuthan, and Nazreen Abdel-Majid. One more news story for you. The new National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations is trying to make inroads with Conservative leader Pierre Polyev. John Kennedy has more. Cindy Woodhouse Nipanak says she hopes to avoid repeating the tensions and frustrations that spawned the Idle No More movement in 2012. It is a legacy that has shaped how young Indigenous activists and leaders continue to view the then-governing Conservatives. Woodhouse Nipanak says she's hopeful Polyev will work with First Nations and avoid a strained treaty relationship like the one under former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. That's your look at the news. Let's get to some feedback and daily polls, beginning with the daily polls from Friday that was related to the NHL All-Star Weekend at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You were asked, when a major event comes to your town, do you attend some of the non-official events like live podcast recordings, concerts, fanfares, etc.? 0% of you said yes, 100% of you said no, but pearly pigtails that offer a little bit of perspective here. They are often looking for volunteers, and I hear this can be a fun thing and give you some free benefits. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Craft and Deborah writes in, no, most are not handicapped accessible. Now, this next piece of feedback is not related to the poll from Friday, but Sally Robb wrote in about a news panel topic. Feedback at ami.ca is the email address. This is what Sally had to say. On Friday, I was listening to you and your guests speak about Hockey Canada and the sexual assault scandal, and I felt I just had to write again to you. Just changing hockey culture will not improve things at all. What we have to do as a society is to make sure that our population, especially men, that violence against women and girls is not acceptable, and if men are violent towards women and girls, they will go to prison for at least 25 years, and I mean at least 25 years. Government and provincial must make laws that protect women and girls from all violence and abuse, and these laws must be enforced with an iron fist. Violence against women and girls must stop now. Uh, I'll put a little side note here. She wrote a lot of this in capital letters. I didn't feel like blowing out my vocal cords this morning. I've written most of this email in capital letters for a reason. I mean, we are living in 2024 and not in the dark ages. I wish you a wonderful evening and a great week ahead. Take care. Bye for now. 
Sally. You should follow Sally's lead and send in emails whenever you hear or see something on the show that gets you fired up. Feedback at AMI.ca. Today's Daily Poll is going to relate to a couple different conversations on the show today. The long and short of it is the aesthetics of assistive technology. And the question at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, how much do the aesthetics of assistive technology influence whether you'll use it? A lot, a little, or not at all? Alex Smythe, this question brings back memories from my youth when I had all kinds of telescopes and magnifying glasses and weird glasses and all sorts of things that were meant to assist me with my legal blindness. And in a lot of cases, they went by the wayside because I just felt so awkward using them. So I think aesthetics impact my use of these things a lot. Uh, yeah, so uh, thinking back to my childhood, Dave, it's a similar situation, different type of technology because it was all around the hearing aids and FM units and all sorts of clunky devices. I Like I remember being like six or seven and basically walking around with the equivalent of like a, um, a Walkman uh, strapped to my waist that had my hearing aids plugged into it so I could hear an FM unit. So yeah, it, it, technology certainly has come a long way. And I think growing up in that era where there was just such rapid advancement in technology so quickly you you didn't really get a choice whether or not it was going to be aesthetically pleasing or you know feel nice or it, it was all about function um we're past that point now I, I i think that certainly if not a little bit a lot uh, in terms of the aesthetic has to be part of the kind of the planning the the development the the production of these assistive devices because people who require it just want to feel like they're using a piece of technology not a piece of assistive technology they want it to be integrated into their lives not having to adapt their lives to fit the needs of the technology they need to use so if it's going to be seamless if it's going to look like it belongs and it's not going to stick out like a, a sore thumb then i think people are going to be a lot more uh kind of uh willing and uh open to using it i know i certainly would so aesthetic as, uh, before I, this question was posed, I didn't really think of, or consider it, but yeah, I think it, there's, there's a, uh, it has a lot to do in terms of influence whether or not I'm going to use a piece of technology. You know, Laura, beyond the conversation that I'm going to be having with Sean Priest about a new navigational device or with Denny Boudreau about wearable technology in a couple of minutes, it is White Cane Week. So I think this question does relate a little bit because sometimes functionality will beat aesthetics every single time, but aesthetics still matters. Yeah, and actually, uh, I could say a lot about the white cane, but it's interesting that I think we all sort of thought about our youth here. And something that came to mind for me when you posed this question was back when I was in high school, you know, something I, I couldn't do is read the board. And I remember being presented with this uh, device that could help with that. And it was like a big sort of thing that would sit on my desk and it had a camera that would capture what was on the board and these glasses that were tethered with a cord that attached to this device. And, and I just looked it and I thought no way there's no way I'm taking that to high school with me so um you know, I think that aesthetics do matter, um, especially when we're younger. Perhaps they matter a little less to me now, um, but I do think that it's something that we should think about. And as Alex said, sort of growing up, maybe we 
we're thinking just, you know, in the development of these devices, we were just grateful to be having them and not at that point where we were thinking about making them attractive. But for me, I think it's that no one really wants to have a device that looks too medical. So I mm. don't mind standing out with my devices and I actually use my cane, my white cane very proudly. And I know that there's a lot of debate around um, fashion canes and colored canes. And I'm all for people doing whatever they want to do there so long as they understand that there may be some safety implications with it not being recognized as widely so for myself I don't mind standing out with my technology but I want it to look cool or I want it to be a piece of disability culture or something that feels empowering mm. I don't want it to be some clunky medical device um, you know and certainly a lot of people who are partially sighted are senior citizens but as a younger person you don't want it to look like something that was designed for a senior citizen Laura I like the way you frame that because certain times the functionality is going to outweigh the aesthetic, but what can you do to make, an, make a statement with the aesthetic while maintaining the functionality? That's a really strong observation. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about things like I know there are prosthetic limbs that have been very beautifully designed where people are um, not only, you know, comfortable, but proud to show off the cool uh, limb that they have, you know, because it's been done artistically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I knew I could get a great response from both of you guys to that question this morning. And I think this will be a common thread that runs throughout the show. In the meantime, you can vote out there in listener land and the viewer vortex at Accessible Media on X at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. The email address, again, totally delighted that Sally has sent a couple in here in the last uh, week or so. Feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or maybe the phone's more your style and you want your voice to be heard from coast to coast to coast on the mighty airwaves of AMI-TV, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, you are well aware that Atlantic Canada is being blanketed with snow. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig will have the latest. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV and in audio at amiplus.ca. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Atlantic Canada is being bombarded with a winter storm. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig has the latest. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, what's the big picture when it comes to the storm? In the first segment of the show, Laura Bain lives in Halifax, talked a little bit about some personal experiences, but what's the big picture? The big picture is all white. There is a <laughs> well ton of snow in Nova Scotia. Um, for those who would recognize the name White One, this storm is being compared to that massive snowstorm that followed a huge hurricane that dumped, oh, I don't know, close to a meter and a half of snow on parts of the province. Um, by the time I logged off work last night, there were there was already about a meter of snow on the ground in some parts. Uh, Cape Breton had gone and declared a local state of emergency because everything is so bogged down. They received about 80 centimeters at the, at the minimum. Um, Halifax is also dealing with, for sure, uh, 70, 75 plus 
centimeters of snow. Oof, oof. And of course, worth noting that when I logged off last night, it was still falling. And I believe it still is to some degree. It was supposed to start tapering off, but what the, the forecast was for more snow through today and things starting to ease off through the day and possibly uh, ending by tomorrow. But it's weather and who knows? And yeah. I have to flag a hilarious little nugget that my colleague Mike McDonald has at the end of today's latest update. Um, he notes that this storm began a oh, mere hours after Shubanakati Sam emerged and see, saw his shadow portending in early spring. And now they're under a meter of snow. <laughs> just a little so. bit of a just a little bit of a dose there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Laura's report was that it's still uh, very, very white and snowy out in those parts. Michelle, what about some of the major impacts here? Closures, power outages, anything mm. on that front? Yeah, the latest that I could see from my uh, my colleagues in Halifax is that there are about 6,000 people without power, which is a lot, but also not as much as perhaps one might have expected for a storm of this size. Um, closures, lots of things are closed. Transit buses are off the roads in Cape Breton, uh, likely off the roads in Halifax today, too. Certainly, they were... Uh, the routes were truncated and and the buses were delayed even getting on the roads yesterday in the first place. Um, lots of government offices are closed or opening late. Um, a lot of municipal services have had to be put on hold entirely, of course, because no one can get anywhere at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a bit hard to uh, really get everything into focus when when the storm is still ongoing. That's what's yeah. so crazy about this one is that it's just it's been a three or a three day event by now. Yeah, and it's just another reminder about the disproportionate impact on. People people with disabilities to think about sidewalks not oh, being cleared, roads not being cleared, people using mobility devices, people who rely on public transit. It's it's once, it's, Michelle, we kind of hit it every single time we talk about a major storm, but there is a disproportionate impact on people with disabilities. There just is. I, oh, there, there absolutely is. I, I, my heart was bleeding for guide dog users and mobility device users and all kinds of people yesterday. I remember when a storm hit Toronto where I am a couple of years ago and dumped 65 centimeters in about 15 hours. So that's by uh, that's objectively a big dump, but it's it pales in comparison to what Nova Scotia is dealing with right now. So I, I really feel for all yeah. of everyone who's trying to navigate all that. And it's worth noting too, it's not just Nova Scotia. Parts of PEI and Newfoundland are also being hit quite hard by this. Not yeah. to the same degree, but we're still talking, you know, 40 to 50 centimeters of snow in those areas. So that's no joke. Either. That's a lot of snow, a lot of yeah. snow. All right, Michelle, <laughs> let's uh, get to a couple other news items here. The federal government is extending its foreign home buyers ban for another two years. Uh, kind of an odd yeah. Sunday political announcement on this one. What, yeah, what we was, just didn't see that one coming at all. What, what was their <laughs> rationale? Uh, they are saying that it's part of... Basically, they're just saying the affordability crisis continues. Uh, housing issue remains a big problem. This is one of many tools at our disposal to try and tackle it. Ergo, we're going to extend it for another couple of years. You might remember this was a, a tax that was put in place. Excuse me, not a tax, a ban that was put in place at the beginning of 2023 that was meant to stop foreign companies and people who were neither permanent residents nor Canadian citizens from buying residential properties. It was supposed to expire at the end of this year and come off entirely in January of 2025. And now that date has been pushed to 2027. 
in terms of rationale, that's pretty much all they said. Yeah. Everything was done by statement. There was no news conference, so no opportunity for a lot of follow-up questions. Um, but that is basically it. That they, you know, the, the the line is that they're using all tools at their disposal to tackle the the housing supply yeah. crisis. I I would if there'd been a press conference, I would have loved for someone to ask a question about whether or not real estate investment trusts have been exempt from this ban because it really appears that American REITs are still buying up lots of Canadian real estate. So that, that to me, that would be a fascinating follow-up as politicians make their way onto Parliament Hill today to maybe ask a little bit of accountability on this. I have very little doubt that Najud Al-Maliz or Tara Deschamps or some of my colleagues in our business department will be all over those kinds of questions. Uh, that's exactly the sort of thing that our real estate reporters will, will have yeah. top of mind right now, I'm sure. As well as just trying to gauge, it's kind of funny given that we don't really have a sense of what impact the foreign homebuyers ban even had in the first place. A, we're only halfway through it and there hasn't been a lot of numbers coming in yet. So we don't really have a sense of of uh, how much of a, yeah. of a chill that really did have. The, the so people seem crunching. to think that it's... Yeah, exactly. There, there, there are there's a school of thought that it did kind of take the air out of the situation, um, but by extension, there's some concerns that perhaps there isn't a whole lot left to get out of this and that mm. this, this ban will have limited effect going forward. So we'll see. Michelle, let's go back to a provincial story that has become quite a national one. The Quebec government going ahead with oh, a yeah. policy to increase tuition for out-of-province university students. You and I have talked about this a couple of times now, including a really great news panel a few months ago. But there's been some back and forth on this recently. So what is the back and forth? Mm. So the back and forth, uh, my colleague Thomas McDonald and Morgan Lowry captured this one yesterday, so worth checking out. There was a committee that was mandated by the government to provide some advice on this issue. And the committee did ultimately provide its advice and said, please reconsider this tuition hike. It's worth noting that the government has already scaled it back from what we discussed on that news panel segment that you talked about, Dave. At that point, they were proposing to almost double the tuition um, from 9000 ish dollars to 18000 ish dollars. Um, they've walked that back, and now the, the, the hike that they're mandating is up to $12,000. So it's a 33% increase instead of a doubling. Uh, that said, the committee was pushing back and saying, no, 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 this is still going to compromise access to education. Uh, students are being asked to take on far too much cost and debt with this. Don't do it. Please don't do it. And the government has said, Okay, thanks, committee. First of all, your sum your submission came in after the deadline, and B, we're going to go ahead anyway. So yeah, this yeah. is where we are. That, that's that's um, that's where we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the, argu the argument that was made by the ministry is that, that whatever economic argument that this committee wanted to make, it, it doesn't hold water versus the cultural argument the government's making. And, and I thought that was a very interesting quote from the statement saying, hey, we, we always understood this was going to be an economic consequence, but we are legislating something different here. We're not worried about the dollars and cents. That's exactly right. In fact, what they said was the committee is is, is ignoring or misunderstanding the goals of this legislation in the first place. So they're coming at it from very different perspectives. The government's point is that we're trying to address a financial imbalance between English language universities and French language ones. We're also trying um, to, to have less money concentrated on students who probably aren't going to stay in the province after they graduate. So that is, this whole measure is the, that is the lens through which the government is viewing it and enacting it. Um, so the committee's, uh, the, the, the government's position was that the committee did not even engage with those goals and focused on different issues and said they're going to forge ahead. Mm -hmm. And the, the plan is still now to have those tuition hikes in place for the fall. Michelle. 
thank you for this. It feels like it's been a, a difficult couple weeks for colleges and universities around the country. So yes, uh, we'll, so we'll stay on this. We'll stay on this education <laughs> beat. You bet. Absolutely. <laughs> Michelle, talk to you on Friday for the news panel. Take oh, care. Wait, wait, Thanks, Michelle. Dave. Michelle, I'm, oh, I'm a bad yes. host. I'm a bad television host. During the break, you and I talked about asking you the daily poll question, and I oh. don't want to miss that opportunity to get the perspective of more people with disabilities on this. The poll, by all means, which folks can find at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, how much do the aesthetics of assistive technology influence whether or not you'll use it? A lot, a little, or not at all? I'm going to have to go with a lot. This will not surprise anyone that knows me. Uh, I, I am slightly vain, I will have to admit. But I also think context matters. I actually loved listening to the, 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 the eavesdropping on the conversation you were having before the break. And I think Laura really nailed it when she was talking about something looking truly medical. That uh, I think that has a lot to do with pushing back against the medical model of disability that we've all kind of chafed under. No one wants to feel like a patient. And I think in terms of certain... Uh, specific devices or specific pieces of tech, that's when it really matters most. For me, I wear prosthetics, but for me, they're my eyes. So the aesthetics are really, really key for me on that one. I, I will absolutely spend a lot of time trying to do that. Um, I love the fact that iPhones allow one to blend in and, and, and still be a very powerful accessibility tool. I totally recognize that my emphasis on this maybe reflects a bit of internalized ableism. Um, I, I, I know that's a thing. But here we are, and, and for me, that's where I land. I, it, it does matter to me. I think, as well. I think as people with disabilities, we're allowed to have internalized ableism. We're, we're allowed to have our own vain yeah. feelings. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're right. And, yeah. and, and in a way, that's, that's, that can be seen as, I don't know, I, I guess it means different things to different people. But for me, it, it matters, and, and I feel empowered when I'm able to, um, to, to blend in a little bit more that way. Michelle, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. No. Yeah, you too. Take care. Don't forget, you can vote on the poll at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Coming up after the break, technology conversation continues. Denis Boudreau explores how the rise of wearable technology could have major implications for assistive devices and services. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Apple's Vision Pro headset is still getting a lot of buzz. All the major tech companies are thinking about how headsets, virtual reality, augmented reality, and AI can intersect. It feels like hardware is at an inflection point, a rise in wearable tech. What are the bigger implications? Denis Boudreau can offer some perspective. Denis is the founder of Inclusive Communication. Hey, good morning, Denis. Nice to chat with you today. Good morning. Happy to be here. So, Denis, I've done this to you a couple times here in the last few months. I'm starting with a premise and hoping that you somewhat agree with me. I'd argue that, that headset hardware is at a significant jumping off point. How do you perceive where they're at? Um, I, I would certainly agree. I mean... Head, uh, like uh, virtual VR headsets in general have been around for a while, obviously. I, I first bought a, um, a Oculus Rift probably 
like in 2018 or something. So it's been a long time, but they've been around. But I, I do believe that we just hit a completely new level in terms of the possibilities, especially for you know people with disabilities. And and the Vision Pro is probably what that is. So yeah, certainly a, a great starting point for for that. And it, and it, you know it's not so much the headset as such as the opportunities that the headset provides combined with other pieces of technology. And that's that's really been the exciting thing about AI as far as I'm concerned is not so much that you know one tool, tool comes out or one particular service comes out and it's revolutionizing different things. It's how when you combine a lot of these different ideas together, all of a sudden new things are possible. Mm. And I, that's, I really think that's, that, that's what makes this particular moment in time with uh, VR headsets so exciting for me. There are some assistive technologies that have already been utilizing smart glasses or utilizing phone cameras for a while. I think about seeing AI or be my eyes. What are some of the big implications for services like that as hardware becomes more mainstream? Well, I, I, I'm assuming most of the listeners are, are already familiar with seeing AI and uh, be my eyes. Um, not too long ago, and I don't know exactly when, but within like the last year, uh, Be My Eyes also had a new service based on ChatGPT called Be My AI. And I think that was a really, again, significant moment in, I, I'd say empowerment in a way. Um, you know, the whole point of being of Be My Eyes is that you connect with a volunteer who then helps you identify things around you using your own phone. So. So the service is is fantastic, and and you know, over six million volunteers or so around the world. So it's like amazing how that came together. But adding AI technology to the service allows you to do that without having to rely on another human. So that alone is already pretty empowering for you know autonomy in in you know in its own way. Especially when the help that you need is with something a bit more private, and you don't necessarily need mean or want to share that with other people. And we all have our own little secret garden, if you will. So, uh, so for whatever reason, that's that's great. But the idea of combining something like Be My AI, for instance, with a headset makes everything that much more natural. I think. I mean, as an example, having to point your your uh, your phone to different things and trying to you know create the uh, the connection needed to be able to identify things or you know just learn more about your environment is not as natural as just moving your head around and then having the entire thing described to you through an AI service, for instance. So getting a lot more awareness around your surroundings and getting like more and more accurate uh, descriptions of what the environment is about, this is all really, really amazing. And when you combine that possibility with the commitment that Apple has had with accessibility on their products over the years. And you realize that all the accessibility features that we know and love inside uh, iOS or, or Mac OS are also available on Apple Vision Pro. Uh, then what that means is that you know your baseline is a piece of technology that already includes everything about voiceover and all the other uh, features, accessibility features that are out there, but now in an environment that is much more immersive. And it just brings it to a different level mm. completely. Denis, you mentioned Apple's history in regards to accessibility. Last week, we spent a little time talking about the 40th anniversary of the Macintosh mm. computer. I, I'm curious how an implication 
an implication of assistive tech in this specific moment may be a parallel or, or, or reflective of something bigger in the history of hardware evolution? I think it's just another milestone towards something even bigger that we can hardly, uh, you know, imagine just yet. So, so yeah, if you, if you look back into the evolution of, of hardware computing and, you know, just assistive technologies in general, and you think back, you know, 20 some years ago when, uh, when the screen readers were not what they are today and were much more limited and, and the possibilities just weren't there, the evolution has already been amazing in that sense. And, and you know, recent versions of JAWS or NVDA, for instance, as screen readers are extremely good voiceover as well. I mean, these technologies are really, really interesting. So thinking that, again, as, you know, and we've talked about this a couple of times before, I mean, with artificial intelligence and, and you know, these different algorithms being able to really identify and understand the environment better, for instance, or being able to connect the dots on different things a little better. Mm -hmm. Or if you go back to the idea of the Apple Vision Pro and um, you know, you're, you're browsing on the web with that technology and you're combining the possibilities of, uh, say, seeing AI, well, be my, be my AI, for instance, and you're looking at a website because you're trying to buy a pair of shoes, for instance, and you can filter through the website by asking different things on uh, to the AI about, you know, shoe size or colors or this mm -hmm, or that. Mm -hmm. You can start thinking about how you can make, you could be making a lot of these decisions that, you know, sighted folks, you know, take for granted because they can do that all the time. But now through technology, you can be empowered to do the same things. And if the feedback that you get from the different requests that you ask or the different filters that you, that you ask for, you know, eventually will work, will work really well. Then at, at some point, I don't know. I mean, the geek in me is thinking that we're getting closer and closer to Matt Murdock and Daredevil. And you you can kind of see the environment <laughs> around you, even though you can't really actually see it. And it's incredibly, incredibly cool in that sense. First Daredevil reference of the week, but I think it might not be the last. You never know. You never know on this show when someone's <laughs> going to reference a Daredevil. Denny, you mentioned that you took the plunge for the Oculus Rift in a 2018. I was yeah. so close to buying a MetaQuest headset in 2022. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was on the precipice. I, I was playing some video games on my uncle's headset that I absolutely adored, but I just couldn't make the dollars make sense. I was like, oh, it's a cool gimmick, but you're not gonna, you're not gonna use it enough. But as some of this technology continues to evolve, how tempted are you by this uh, Apple Vision Pro, even at its uh, $3,500 price tag? Yeah, 3500 US. Let's just add US oh, yeah. to that. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a bit more than that. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm super excited, obviously, about it. I, uh, I, I, I can probably, you know, try to justify the, the expense to my accountant because it's new research. Uh, so you can get a lot of things <laughs> approved with that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's an incredible piece of technology, but it's also an incredible price point. So uh, price tag. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm going to wait really a little bit more because it's it's just too much of an investment for the likelihood of actually using it. You know, like you said, I mean, would I use it enough to do that? Um, I don't know. At this point, I don't know. I, th I think that it needs to be normalized a bit more. And then at some point it becomes a bit more, um, you know, a bit more affordable. Mm. Um, 
So, and, and there, there's one thing, there's actually one thing that also concerns me a little bit, we haven't mentioned today, but I think it's worth mentioning is that it looks great from the perspective of all the accessibility features and you know, the potential that the tool has. But one of the biggest concerns that I have from an accessibility, well, I mean, from a usability standpoint, but accessibility as well, especially for some people with different types of mobility impairments, for instance, would be that uh, the actual weight of the device mm. um, you know, compared, it's not really more, more heavy than other uh, similar headsets, but all the weight is in the front as opposed to other other headsets where you know, some of it is in the back because it carries the battery and all that stuff. Apple's is much heavier in that sense. So they took the, ba the battery out and it's something that you, you carry beside you. You don't have it on your head. But having all that weight and, you know, we're talking, I think, like half a pound or like it's not super heavy, but everyone that I've listened to having tried it was saying that, you know, after like 15, 20 minutes or so, when you start feeling tension on in your neck because mm. it's it's mm. a lot of weight in the front of your face. So I'm thinking someone, someone who has as a bit more difficulty supporting that kind of weight at some point, yeah, it might be very accessible to you, but you can only wear it for so long before it becomes painful. Mm. So, you know, I, I have a concern about that, that would be exacerbated with some, with some users. Um, but I, I strongly believe that, you know, they are going to fix this over time and, you know, it's going to get a little better and, and probably will get a little better also as the price starts coming down a little bit more. So, you know, at some point these two it will intersect a little bit more and then, you know, maybe it's more reasonable to try to, to try yeah. to yeah. get more. A little sleeker, a little lighter. Yeah. Right now it sort of looks like a big set of ski goggles, you know, it, it, which admittedly is still, right. yeah, which yeah. is still kind of sleeker than a lot of other stuff on the, on the market, but, but, but not quite all but the way still there very yet. stylish. Yeah. I mean, I mean, aesthetics are, you were talking about aesthetics with uh, Michelle just before. I mean, the, 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 the aesthetics of the, the, the hardware, the, the product itself are amazing already. So, I mean, it's Apple, it's what you expect. So finding a good way to combine that, to get the, 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 Wait a little lower and then keep improving on the aesthetics of it. You know, at some point you also pay for that. And then you, those of us who, who are, you know, Apple uh, fans, you know, have accepted that a long time ago. I mean, you, you pay more, but because you get a, like a piece of technology that's, that actually looks really nice. So, so that's part of it. It's part of the aesthetics for sure. Right on. Hey, Denny, thank you for this. You always bring such great perspective to these conversations. Have a lovely day. You as well. Thank you. I would have told him to have a lovely day regardless of his great perspective, but he gets the compliment <laughs> nonetheless. Denis Boudreau is the founder of Inclusive Communication. Let's bring in Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. Alex, I do suppose that the weather story of the day is Atlantic Canada, but it, it's, it's been talked about quite a bit here in the first 40 minutes of the show. So take me somewhere else in the country. Yeah, not only will I take you somewhere else, Dave, I am also going to highlight some places having a bit more of a positive uh, uh, weather forecast for the it. week. I love it. Optimism. And that is in our very own backyard in the Golden Horseshoe, southwestern Ontario, because it's expected to be pretty sunny, pretty mild, pretty comfortable all around this week. So as I mentioned, sunshine and a mix of sun and clouds are forecast from today until Friday. And that's when there will be a bit of rain coming into the forecast at the end of the week, into the weekend. Uh, but 
the weather will still be uh, considered mild for February. Overall, let's look at today. You're going to see highs around two to three degrees throughout the region, and it's going to be that mix of sun and clouds. Tomorrow, it'll be slightly cooler. Highs will be between plus one and plus three. It will be cooler along the lakeside, so Toronto, Oakville, uh, you know, Oshawa, Whippy, they're all going to be around plus one. It begins to get warmer, though, once we get midweek into Wednesday. There's going to be a high of six degrees in Kitchener and Niagara Falls, a high of five in Hamilton, and Toronto will be a plus three. That warming continues into Thursday because it's going to be even slightly warmer. Niagara Falls will see a high of eight, Hamilton seven. It will be a plus five for Toronto. As I mentioned, though, Friday, rain is expected to hit the entire region, but that will come with even more increased warmth. It will be probably around nine degrees as a high throughout the region. And that's a positive thing that it's getting warm, mostly sun. However, as the month of February does carry on and into the second half, it is expected to go back below seasonal. So that's gonna mean more cold air, potentially more snow. So enjoy the warm weather this week and the sunshine while it lasts, Dave. Maybe the cargo shorts are gonna come out. Thanks for this, Alex. Coming up after the break, Fool Me Once made a big splash on Netflix. Entertainment critic Kim Thistle will share her thoughts on the British miniseries. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A murder mystery series on Netflix dominated the streaming charts last month. Fool Me Once debuted at number one on the Nielsen rankings of streaming originals. Here's a clip from the trailer. When I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. A woman tosses dirt into her husband's grave. This is where the attack happened. And this is where Joe Burke was murdered. Two cops investigate a park. At night, two bikers pass the woman. She flashes back to his murder. She kneels over his body. Based on the best-selling novel by Harlan Coben. I don't want to leave you. I'll be fine. I've got something for you. Nanny cam. Why have you got me a secret camera? You can keep an eye on Lily when you're not here. It looks like a picture frame. Later, the woman reviews the video and sees her husband on it from the creators of The Stranger and Stay Close. How can a dead man appear on a secret camera? Well, my dead son, whom we buried, stop this. I think you should get help. I want answers. Entertainment critic Kim Thistle has thoughts on the miniseries and can offer up a review. Hey, good morning, Kim. Hey, good morning. How are you? Kim, I'm good. I have to confess, the trailer just grabbed my attention. Did the series grab your attention? Um, yes, it did. And I'm telling you, it's, it's an investment, okay? Because as I said, as you said, January was a top selling. And I said, okay, let's see what this is about to keep my attention. It's, you know, it's harder, you know, it's fine to get me to stay with eight shows to invest in the well worth it. And it's... um. The plot, as you said, a murdered husband was murdered. 
the widow? Is she losing her mind? Is the thriller does the vice from the dead? Is there a twin brother? Like your your head spins around. Like you know how what's this all about? So, and the author Arthur Harlan, what Harlan Cohen, he has on Netflix H movies also, and then Harlan Cohen collection on Netflix. But this particular show, Boom Me Once, has the most shocking ending of all. So, and I. I, you know, I wish I could get into a little bit more, but I no, can't. No spoilers. No, 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 Kim, Kim, please. No spoilers. No spoilers. So so moving away from maybe the twists and turns of the plot, how many characters were they asking you to keep track of during the course of these eight episodes? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. How many characters? Jeepers. I'm going to say Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't need the number. I don't need the number. But, like, take that many. question as a generalization. Yes. Okay, so many, many characters. Yes. So you're trying to keep track of the different characters. You're trying to keep track of the different subplots. You're trying to keep track of the lies, the deceit, the secrets. And there's layers and layers and layers and layers. So there's a whole lot to be following in this movie. So if you're one of those people that sit back and say, I want to try to figure this out. Well, I think you'll have a real, real fun time trying to keep it straight. <laughs> How was the acting? Well, the acting was phenomenal. So I, I give you some of the characters, like Joanne Lumley is the mother. Michelle Keegan is the widow, and she's also an ex-fighter pilot. So that tells, for me, that she was a very strong character. And, you know, she's an ex-military. Um, Richard Armitage is Joe, the husband. And Adil Akar was Detective Sir, Sergeant Kiev. Kiev. I loved him. He was probably my favorite character because I really felt that they de- he he expanded into the role and you're wondering about his life and wanting to know more about him. That was me personally. Like, I, the, like some shows, you know, they're one-dimensional. I felt that he was more mm. than one-dimensional. Mm. Emmett J. Scallon is a chain, the military police, her friend, and Laurie Kinson is Corey, the whistleblower. So, I mean, there's so many different characters. I mean, I didn't even list all the actors <laughs> that were in it. Uh, Kim, you mentioned the idea that this is an investment, eight episodes yes. across the miniseries. I I will confess this to you, though. Eight doesn't strike me as the ultimate investment if I know I'm getting to an end point, right? Like, like what if if this was sort of a a murder mystery TV series that might go for an indefinite number of seasons, that's when maybe I'm going to be reluctant (laughs) to hit play or wait for the whole thing to come out. Whereas when you tell me this is self-contained and I get to walk away, even if the ending is a twist that you and I can't spoil right now, at least I know at the end of eight episodes I'm going to be potentially satisfied. Oh, you will be. I think you will be. And yeah, you'll you'll be happy that you invested the time into watching. And I say investing because, you know, eight hours of your life sitting on the couch (laughs) and you want to make it worth your while. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't take a lot to get me on the couch for eight hours, but uh, but but your point (laughs) is taken. Your point is taken. How is the audio description? Oh, my gosh. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. That too. Oh, uh, Kim, we just lost your audio. I, you may have accidentally muted yourself in your enthusiasm there. Mm, I'm back. There we go. We got Kim back. Yeah. Okay. By mistake, I'm, my enthusiasm, I pressed my button. Um, the, the audio description was spot on. I, I had ri- originally written down very good, and I said change it to excellent because it starts right from the beginning. It said numbers. Like this is even how the series starts. Numbers appear. Like you hear that voiceover. She says number a number of numbers appear. 1996. A group of masked teenagers drag a boy out of a building. That's how it starts. And, and even all the nuances, the little things that the characters would do that. 
you know, as a sighted person, you would see, like, he takes off his glasses and he looks out over the bullpen and he picks up his phone, like every detail like that. So I really appreciated that they told us of an aerial view. If you see her car driving up into the stately mansion because her family are very wealthy, his family, I should say, the ex she's a widow. So very well done. Kim, I'm reading between the lines here. I kind of feel like the answer is yes. Do you recommend Fool Me Once? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, check it out. And I would love to talk to you, you know, on the side after, and you'd send me a note and tell me what you thought about it, <laughs> if you were hooked into it. Well, football season is almost over, Kim, so then I can start oh. really consuming stuff. Kim, have a, have a great day. Thank you for this. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. That's Kim Thistle, entertainment critic in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador with a review of Fool Me Once. It is rated MA for mature audiences and available to stream on Netflix. In one minute, Laura Bain will have a recap of the Grammy Awards. But first, Microsoft is expanding its co-pilot service. Mike Dubusky has more in Tech Trends. From ABC News Tech Trends, Microsoft is offering some AI assistance for a price. The company introducing Copilot Pro, an upgraded version of its artificial intelligence system. It comes with access to the latest AI models, things like GPT-4, GPT-4 Turbo, um, a higher quality of service so you can always get access to it, uh, better access to images so you get the ability to get images in landscape form, you get more boosts as we call them so you can get more images more quickly. Microsoft Executive Vice President Yusuf Mehdi says this will also infuse AI into Office. You can use AI to help you write emails in Outlook, to help draft documents for you in Word. The base co-pilot still available for free. Pro will cost $20 a month and Mehdi points out these kinds of tiers are common. Take a look at YouTube, right? You can use YouTube for free and you get an incredible amount of content, but then they have a YouTube premium that then gives you access to special features. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike, from technology to entertainment. The 66th, 66th annual Grammy Awards took place last night in L.A., Laura Bain has a recap. Hey, Laura, lots of uh, hardware handed out last night. Holy smokes. Yeah, there sure was. You know, I think I mentioned on Friday, 94 awards, two ceremonies, with the main ceremony being over three hours long. So we're just going to touch on a couple of highlights that <laughs> happened. So uh, we're going to start it out with Taylor Swift, your girl Taylor Swift, mm -hmm. <laughs> making Grammy history last night when she won for Album of the Year with her album Midnights. And uh, this uh, has made her the first artist to ever win in this category four times. So she's picked up the best album category four times. And now she used that opportunity of receiving that award to make a big announcement. And I think we have a clip of that announcement to play. My brand new album <laughs> comes out April 19th. It's called, <laughs> it's called the Tortured Poets Department. Swifties are pretty excited today, <laughs> safe to say. <laughs> Ah, yeah, there's no doubt about that. You can hear the roar, the pitch of the crowd when she makes that announcement. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, fans were expecting that her next album was going to be another Taylor's version album. So she kind of she kind of fooled everybody by hiding this uh, new content coming out. But I, uh, I don't know where she has the time to make a brand new album. The Taylor's no. versions, the Eras tour, <laughs> the going to football games. I, I don't know when she actually has time to sit down and write this music. 
Are we sure there isn't like multiple clone versions of Taylor Swift out there? Can somebody check on that? I don't. <laughs> that seems possible, actually. Um, so uh, another kind of interesting thing, Killer Mike was a big winner last night, taking home three awards. But there was an apparent altercation backstage, which led to him being arrested by LAPD during the ceremony. So um, not too many details out about that yet, but it'll be interesting to kind of hear more about what happened there. Yeah, Tale of Two nights for killer mike no doubt about that mm -hmm. highs and lows um so there were of course tributes to artists that were lost over the year including tony bennett clarence avant and sinead o'connor now annie lennox did that sinead o'connor tribute and used that opportunity to call for a ceasefire in gaza which i think is, is it's so sinead it's so appropriate for sinead o'connor tribute to use it to make a political state, mm -hmm. uh, statement uh but one tribute that really stood out was Fanta fantasia barrera uh Bur uh, sorry, Barino doing a tribute to Tina Turner. Uh, and I think we have a clip of that to play. That was super cool. Not just the tribute, but uh, Oprah Winfrey set that one up on stage, which was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the being a friend of Tina's there and I felt like Fantasia was really channeling Tina's sound, but also she wore this like sparkly gold outfit with big shoulder pads. So kind of channeling her in terms of uh, look there as well. And, uh, you know, something I teased, I think it was during the Friday segment, Joni Mitchell was to give her first ever performance at the Grammys. Uh, kind of hard to believe, uh, but she did. Uh, this was after winning her 10th Grammy Award earlier that day for Best Folk Album. And uh, I think we have a clip of that to play as well. Yeah, and that that had a really cool feel. She had a bunch of other artists up there on stage with her, kind of like a living room feel to it. And, uh, you know, Joni Mitchell has dealt with a lot of health challenges over the last few years. And now giving this first ever Grammy performance, winning her 10th Grammy Award at 80, I, I've got to imagine that that feels like quite a triumph. Oh, it's it's got to feel great. There was a lot of Canadian content across the show last night, including Grammys for operatic performances, but also a Celine Dion came out and made a surprise appearance, actually handed out the Album of the Year uh, award to Taylor Swift, which was really cool to see Celine and Taylor on stage together. Like, that was fantastic. Yeah, for sure. Making kind of a rare appearance since being diagnosed with stiff person syndrome. A throwback to a segment last week that uh, John did when yeah, he was covering yeah. for me during my illness there and uh, receiving a standing ovation from the crowd. So that was uh, that was nice to see. And of course, she has a film coming out kind of about what she's been dealing with the last couple of years. Now, on Friday, Dave, you and I talked about who was going to win the song of the year and who we were rooting for. You were rooting for Taylor Swift. She did not take it. Uh, Billie Eilish did. But <laughs> safe to say that there's no kind of disappointment happening amongst Taylor fans today. So what about you? Are you feeling pretty excited about this new album oh. coming out? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I'm super excited for the new album. Yeah, Billie Eilish wins for Best Song, and uh, and one of the other nominees for Best Song, who you and I both uh, put a little bit of praise on last week as well, Miley Cyrus, ended up winning for Record of the Year on Flowers. So in the end, 
everybody got to walk away with some hardware, so everybody's happy. This really gets an upside and a downside all at once. They are the most compelling just in terms of the performances and kind of the personalities and what there is to talk about the next day. You know, we've got the Oscars coming up, of course, they're another big one. But uh, yeah, I feel like uh, there's probably do a whole week of segments on the <laughs> on what happened at the Grammys. We won't, but uh, just a couple of couple of highlights from the night. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Laura. Thanks, as always. Uh, best of luck digging out of Halifax this morning. Yeah, thanks, Dave. <laughs> That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, some cities in Quebec want the province to reconsider how mining claims are handed out. I'll explain in the regional news update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. It's Monday, February the 5th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, White Cane Week is celebrating its 21st anniversary. Jim Tokos from the Canadian Council of the Blind gives you a preview. And the latest prototype for Glide made its debut at CES. Sean Priest shares his opinion about the aesthetics of the navigational device. And of course, that relates to the Daily Poll as well. But the hour begins with the regional news update. Starting in the prairies, teachers in Saskatchewan are headed to the picket lines again this week. The Saskatchewan Teachers Federation says Creighton School Division, Northern Lights School Division, Prairie Spirit School Division, Greater Saskatoon Catholic Schools, and Saskatoon Public Schools will strike on Wednesday. The union will be engaging in rotating strikes. About 100 students gathered outside the legislative building and staged a rally in solidarity with the teachers last week. Over in Quebec, Quebec's Association of Municipalities is asking for changes to the province's mineral rights claim system. Advisor Julie-Ride Forger says there's too much onus on towns if they want to prevent mining. What's difficult for some municipalities to accept is that they need to justify why they want this territory to be incompatible with mining. Ellen Rice Hogan raises cattle and sheep in Low Quebec. She was shocked to find someone had a staked, oh, I'll do that properly. She was shocked to discover someone had staked a mining claim underneath part of her farm. We're a small municipality, we're a small community. The potential of this is huge and it's gonna have a huge negative impact, I feel, on our territory. Graphite and lithium are in high demand due to increased battery production. That's your look at the regional news. Let's chat about sports with Brock Richardson. Brock, there's still some ripples from NHL All-Star Weekend, including some broadcast awkwardness. Yes, so... The NHL uh, All-Star broadcast was paying tribute to the 1967 Toronto Maple Leafs 
championship and Stanley Cup winning team. Ron McLean was talking to the players as part of this broadcast. There was a very awkward moment between uh, him and Dave Holford. Apparently, Dave did not want to be interviewed by Ron McLean, but he proceeded to ask the question anyway. And I have to say, I went away from this on Friday night, not really thinking much about this and kind of going, oh, oh sorry, Thursday night as it was, uh, not really thinking much about this. And then when I went on to social media on a fr- fr- Friday evening, I realized that Don, um, uh, Ron McLean was uh, trending on social media. And the reason he was trending was because people were saying that he he's out of touch yet again, and he doesn't know how to handle these things. So I ask you, do you feel Ron McLean is out of touch and needs to move on from Hockey Night in Canada? It's a little weird that the player asked not to be interviewed and he chose to ask him a question anyway. But I also understand the perspective of the broadcaster of it. There's almost no way to make that unawkward because if if Ron McClain decides to walk right by the player and go to the next guy, then the critics are going to say, look at Ron McClain. He doesn't respect, uh, he doesn't respect uh, this other guy. So Ron McClain's in a lose-lose situation. Uh, clearly, Clearly, the Hockey Night in Canada has somewhat phased him out as it stands with increased use of voices like David Amber, who's excellent on the broadcasts. But I don't know, Brock. I I think people are just haters on Ron McLean, and broadcasters are rarely allowed to age gracefully. And that's one of the sad things about this industry. And and I think, to your point, it goes, it lends well to my next stop. Because as I was scrolling through social media, things started to trend from He's out of touch with this whole, you know, the, the athlete didn't want to be interviewed and it was this awkward, like, head shake. And then it started to pull into, well, back in 2019, he should have been gone with Don Cherry because of Don Cherry's comments and he didn't really do anything with that. And it's just like, oh, my goodness, if you're going to be a Ron McClain hater, I guess you're going to be a Ron McClain hater um, because I don't see any reason why 2019 needed to be pulled up again. I as I said, I didn't really look at the situation and go, well, that was that was uncomfortable. I looked at it exactly how you said it. If you go past the person and you don't ask him a question, then everybody does the reverse. So, like you said, and I agree, he's in a lose lose situation, and it's wrong. And I and I and I personally like Ron McLean, but it's because it's really what I what I grew up with. It's what I know to be hockey night in Canada. If I grew up with somebody else. Maybe I have a difference of opinion, but I literally grew up with Ron McLean, and I just think he did the best that he could under a odd circumstance. Yeah, you you almost wonder if the player doesn't want to be interviewed, how maybe you shuffle them to the side or the back or put them at the end of the line so it's easy to kind of get through that uh, in a way that's not particularly awkward. Yeah, lose-lose situation for a broadcaster. Not easy. Okay, let's uh, get to one more hockey note that came out of the weekend. This broke on Friday, not long after the show uh, went off the air, but it's pretty thrilling. Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL, says NHL players will be returning to the Olympics in 2026 and 2030 and Brock pretty much the consensus on this one in a divided polarized world it seems as though people are overjoyed by this announcement yes it does and I am overjoyed by this as well I think that this is a good decision I think the uh, hockey tournament is better when it's it's uh, best on best and when the NHL players 
get to go in there. And again, I, I want to reiterate in this point, this is more about players want to go for the for the idea of winning an Olympic medal, just like any of the Olympians do. It's not for them for any other reason. They want to go and represent their country. So that's the thing I respect about them. Even though they have a league and they make their money, they really want to chase after that gold medal. So I really, really respect that. And I love the fact that they're going to be back um, in 2026 and 2030 because I wasn't sure if they were going to come back uh, this soon, but I'm glad to see that they will do so because it will make the hockey tournament that much better. International hockey is in a much better place than it was the last time they were in the Olympics in 2014. The reemergence of Czechia and Slovakia sending lots of players to be drafted in the first round in the last three or four years means those teams should be in fine form. The rise of Germany as a hockey power is, is occurring in real time. So you add that to your traditional powerhouses like Canada, U.S., Finland, Sweden. It means the tournament itself is arguably going to be even better than the 2014 tournament, which was actually kind of a lame tournament so yeah it's, it's, it's nice to see them back and it's nice to know that the, the state of international hockey is better there's still the question mark hanging over whether or not the russian players will be allowed to play that's a different kettle of fish for a different day brock talk to you later have a nice day you as well that is brock richardson at the ami sports desk coming up after the break the glide navigational device the latest prototype made its debut at ces sean priest will share his opinion on the aesthetics of it and what that means for users fashion critic sean priest coming up after the break this is now with dave brown on ami tv back it's now with dave brown on ami tv the glide navigational device debuted a prototype at ces last month the device has been described as the first self-guided mobility aid for individuals with sight loss I want to give you a little more of a description here, just so you understand precisely what I'm talking about. It's a small rectangular device that sits on two wheels. It's connected to a stick with a handle at the top that the user can steer. It resembles a miniature lawnmower. I'd say it's even closer to a miniature stick vacuum, but that's just a matter of discourse and debate. Sean Priest has some thoughts on the glide and its overall aesthetics. Sean is one of the hosts of Double Tap, which you can find daily at noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. And he's now with Dave Brown's Fashion Police. Stop it, Dave. Fashion victim, maybe. <laughs> okay, I yeah. don't know. I think, you and, I, think, you? I think you and I both sit in that camp, sir. <laughs> All right, Sean, just before you and I dive into the aesthetics here, which also relates to today's daily poll on the show, what are some of the specific features of the Glide? Okay, so it's actually a, a cool device. And I, I've got to say as well, this is from a company called Glidance, and it's for, uh, formed by a blind engineer. So this isn't, you know, a, a sighted person's thinking what we need and trying to help, but it's actually from uh, a person who would use this technology. So that's really, really cool. So basically, 
this has um, cameras and sensors on it, LiDAR, and it's able to detect obstacles in front of you and things like um, elevator doors and normal doors. And it can, well, basically, it can drive you around. So it does pull you, um, it's motorized wheels, and it pulls you around obstacles. It will guide you. Uh, very much like a, you know, a, a lawnmower where you're cutting the grass and if you press the bar, it will sort of pull you along, but not drag you, just sort mm, of gently pull mm. you along. It's that same sort of thing. And with the AI, because AI, everything's got to have AI, <laughs> um, with the AI and the cameras, that the cameras are in the actual base, the rectangle base, and in the handle as well. Um, so it could be used for detecting things above eye line and things like that, although they're not used currently in the prototype. Um, but basically, it can guide you around things. Now, that sounds really cool to me and could be incredibly useful. I also definitely see the use case here, right? It, it, it's, it's interesting to have this conversation in the context of White Cane Week in Canada to say, here once again, somebody else is trying to offer you <laughs> a technology navigational alternative. But again, understanding the use of cameras and haptic feedback and the notion of being steered, navigation, uh, obstacle avoidance, th there, are, yep. there are some features here that would certainly be appealing to folks. But Sean... We've been throwing some images up on screen while you've been talking. It just looks a little strange. Like, like someone would definitely stand out in a crowd if they made their way down the street with this. And that's the point for me. I'm not against this technology at all. And as you rightfully said, you know, we've had technology trying to sort of improve current mobility aids. And I don't think it's worked as of yet. That's not to say we should give up on it. Maybe there's some use here. And maybe this is the device that we think this works. You know, this makes a difference to how I get around. But I can't get away from, would I actually use it? Someone said, would you use it if it promised, you know, delivered on its promises? I don't know. I, and, I, and I'm sort of kicking myself because of that because it's purely down to vanity. Would I feel okay walking down the street with basically, I think you're absolutely right, a stick vacuum. If you're old enough to remember that we used to call them U-banks, but carpet sweepers, the old manual ones used to roll around. <laughs> That's what it looks like to me. Now, if it does what it does, though, it makes my life easier, why do I care about that? And that's what I find really interesting. I really don't know the answer to it, vanity, whatever you want to call it. But I think that is something I think of, first of all, when I think about using this device. Will I stand out? And I had a conversation with someone else and said, yeah, what, what is the reason for that? Is it because I'm ashamed of my disability? What is the point here? Why am I so worried about it? And they came, out, came back with the comment, well, actually, it's people's attitude to you. Because when I'm walking down the street sometimes with my cane, you know, you sometimes get people saying, oh, you playing golf because my yeah, cane's got a little ball at the bottom or, <laughs> you know, your marshmallow, something stupid. And... Okay, it's nothing. It's a ha ha ha. Yeah, whatever. You know, move on. But there is that that point there that it does make you stand out, and it does give people they feel like they have the entitlement to comment on that. And sometimes, you know, day after day of that, it can get on your nerves. So yeah, I, I just think it's an interesting discussion when it comes down to the aesthetics of these things. And I also relate it back to those times when I was losing my vision and my resistance to just using a white cane. Yeah. And now looking back at it, I think I'm absolutely ridiculous. Why did I waste so much time 
you know, with that anxiety of not using a cane? And why was I so hesitant in picking up that white cane? I didn't, was I still in denial about blindness? Was it, I didn't want to stand out? Is it the same thing? How useful does a thing have to be before I get over that? How do I look using yeah. this device? But Sean, that, that, that's the grapple, right? That even as someone like myself who was born with a disability, I, I still grapple with it 40 years later, how much I want to blend or how much I want to stand out, how much I want to advocate for myself. Because some days you just want to blend and pushing a vacuum down the street is not going to help you blend, especially if it's not commonplace technology, right? At least at this point, there's a generalized understanding of the white cane. Ideally, society is going to leave you alone you push that vacuum down the street and every tom dick jane and harry is going to be harassing you about your vacuum yeah absolutely right i think you've got a good point but then is it a case of does it matter? Should you know? Do we need to toughen up? I say we. I should. No, 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 no. We, no, no we, we's fair. I'm with you on this. Yeah, it just feels, you know, I, I would feel a certain way about that. But then if it makes a difference, if it's that useful, we shouldn't care. There's other tech out there as well where I feel the same way. Some of the wearable tech, there's a, uh, a mobility aid out there that you actually wear around your neck. And I think it looks like a toilet seat you're putting over your head. <laughs> oh, no. Right. And it's just and it's got cameras around and sensors. And I don't know how well it works, but even if it works incredibly well, how comfortable would I feel? going out with that um yeah honestly i don't know maybe it's just vanity or maybe there's something that maybe the design and the aesthetics need to be more thought about more of a consideration i don't know yeah, I just want to remind folks that this this topic prompted the daily poll at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. How much do aesthetics influence whether or not you'll use or buy accessible or assistive technology? A lot a little or not at all. And Sean, I, I you know, like yourself, I, I, I go through these grapples. I, I really do go mm. through these grapples. A lot of it when I was a kid, the idea of, okay, use this telescope and this magnifying glass and here's a CCTV and you can sit yes. at the back of the class and use your CCTV to read. And it's, now I'll, I'll drill down here on the CCTV. I found it kind of difficult to use, so all the more reason as to why I wasn't going to sit at the back of the class totally isolated from all my friends just to use this piece of technology, even though it was a you. good piece of technology, it just wasn't right for me, whereas I was eventually able to come to terms with telescope, magnifying glass, we're going to have to bite the bullet on this one. You're just going to have to use those and still carry those around with you. But Sean, it blends into some broader conversations you and I have had about the mainstreaming of assistive tech and how much more you can get under one roof in, in terms of one piece of tech that you don't want to carry a 20-pound bag of technology everywhere you go, or in this case, schlep your vacuum around. Vacuum. We should stop calling it a vacuum, but I think that's exactly what people think of when they when they hear about or get this description of this device. I th I think you're right. I just I can't get over that. That as a teenager going through that sort of thing, I I totally get it. You know, pulling out a monocular at a bus stop or something as a as a teenager was really oh my difficult. gosh, and like putting your face up against the bus stop information like that's not sanitary. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. But, you know, now as a 50-year-old man, I think I should be over this. And in most cases, I am. But it, it's funny to me that this is still one of the first things that, that 
comes to mind when someone describes a piece of tech or something. It's like the um, something like the uh, eSight or the other visual. Yeah, the headset, the headset the, goggles. The headsets. Yeah. Now, they they, could, they make a huge difference to certain um, sight problems. They can make a big difference, but. I don't know how I would feel about wearing that every day around the supermarket because, again, you're drawing attention to yourself. But it's that fine line, it's that balancing act between making my life easier uh, versus standing out in a crowd and maybe having to deal with some comments. Honestly, I don't know. But the glide is something that has gathered a lot of interest so i would be interested in how you know uh, ami listeners feel about yeah it. yeah and that and that's it right this goes back to this idea of people with disabilities are not some singularity there's not some monolith we're all complex in our own journeys uh when it comes exactly. to disability sean i think i've told you my e-site uh headset story because they're based out of ottawa ontario which is where i used to work yeah. and one of the first stories i ever did for ami was about e-site talking to some of the developers and doing a demo with it and i was super blown away as i was on the third floor of their building reading license plates off cars in parking lots like with That's ease right. like with total ease and i still thought to myself yeah but i'd never wear these things in public that's interesting though right how much of a difference could that make to your life it's like if i could put a diver's helmet on my head and be able to walk around purely on my own independently would i wear it how good does that technology have to be I, I, it's strange where we're, yeah. human beings are strange things. I don't know how much. <laughs> I don't understand it myself. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. So we get to wrap this up with the Doors song, People Are Strange. Sean, Sean Priest and Dave Brown, uh, proven true examples. Hey, Sean, Absolutely. Have a, I know you've been running around today. Thank you for making the time. Have a great show with Stephen later this afternoon. Thanks a lot, Dave. Take care. That's Sean Priest. He's one of the hosts of Double Tap. You can find the show daily at noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, White Cane Week is celebrating its 21st anniversary. Jim Tokos from the Canadian Council of the Blind gives you a preview of this year's programming. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. White Cane Week kicks off today. The Canadian Council of the Blind is putting on events all across the country. White Cane Week is dedicated to raising awareness about the challenges faced by people who are blind and partially sighted. Jim Tokos has more details. Jim is the national president of the CCB. Hey, Jim, great to chat with you once again. Great to chat with you, Dave. Jim, uh, you and I have spoken a couple times over the last few years on the show about White Cane Week. I've covered events for over a decade now on uh, on AMI-tv. 21st anniversary this year, 21st edition of White Cane Week. How do you feel it's grown over the course of the last two decades? Exponentially. It's here, and uh, uh, it's wonderful that uh, we we have uh, we have many uh, activities going on from um, coast to coast to coast, and uh, um, our chapters 
uh, of which we have over 80 across Canada, uh, are all involved in activity um, to educate the public in, uh, um, uh, you know, the the uh, the items that can be used uh, as a, as assistive technology uh, to help people in less. Uh, live as much a normal life as possible. And uh, so we celebrate. Uh, we celebrate our abilities, not our disabilities. Jim, it's one of the things that I've always enjoyed about my time covering White Cane Week is that, yes, it's an awareness campaign, but B, it's a big-time celebration. And there are going to be celebrations happening all across the country. What's going on with the uh, curling championship? I, I hear my friends in Ottawa don't get to host it this year. Uh, you're, you're correct. Uh, this year, we're uh, we're we uh, we are we are sending a couple of teams from Ontario to Edmonton to join in the Western Curling Championship, um, and uh, uh, it'll all be back next year. Um, with the pandemic, we kind of lost touch and uh, uh, lost some of the curling chapters, um, but now they're all raring to go, and we'll have them ready for next year's event. Jim, what are some of the other notable events? I mean, I know there's dozens of events happening across the country, and it's kind of like uh, picking your favorite child. It's tough to do. But uh, what what are some of the other events to, to highlight this week for folks across the country? Well, I, it started off yesterday. I was on a, uh, a, a call with our BC division, uh, and um, uh, they were working with the Lions and highlighting... Um, um, you know some of the uh, the issues with the lions and where the lions fit in, and uh, uh, tearfully I listened to a speech from uh, that was reproduced from from Helen Keller, and uh, uh, it just kind of outlined the beginning of uh, uh, where the lions became the Knights of the Blind, and uh, 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 it was a very very sincere story, and uh, it was tough to get through. <laughs> But these are the kind of things that, uh, um, you know, we as people with vision loss ourselves don't realize. So we're educating ourselves as well as the public in the process. So it's great. Uh, Jim, there's a couple other uh, notes worth passing along here. White Cane Magazine, uh, always a pleasure when that drops uh, a couple times throughout the year. There's another edition coming out on February the 16th. What's, uh, what's so special about this edition coming out on the 16th? So this edition that's coming out in February the 16th. Uh, so we're working um, um, to to move uh, the needle on a national eye care strategy with the Honorable Judy Scrow. Um, and the bill is in uh, uh, the hands of the Senate right now. Um, so uh, uh, kudos to all the uh, the vision loss organizations for supporting and uh, and uh, the, the optometrists and ophthalmologists uh, all for supporting this bill as we move it forward. But uh, it looks like it's going to be come into fruition hopefully by by this this spring. And y'all are staying busy uh, across the board here. February is a busy month for all the folks around the CCB because White Cane Weep drops, drops, uh, finishes up on February the 10th. The magazine drops on the 16th. And then February 27th, you have the White Cane Week conference. So what are you hoping that folks get out of that conference on February 27th? Well, it's 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 an update on... Uh, um, it's... it's 
besides being uh, AMD Awareness Month, um, uh, where it is also um, uh, an update on the survey that we we brought out a while back on uh, preventable vision loss and uh, uh, you know ensuring that you know uh, people are getting their eyes tested and uh, so. Uh, you know, once once we are successful at uh, uh, those seventy five percent of people who are living, um, you know, with correctable vision, um, they continue to get their eyes checked. So to to ensure that uh, uh, we don't add to the blindness community, that's uh, that's what our awareness program is. Hey Jim, I know you've got a busy week ahead of you. Thank you for stopping by today to talk a little bit about it. All the best to you and your colleagues. Have a lovely White Cane Week. Well, thank you, and it's always a pleasure, Dave. That's Jim Tokos, National President of the Canadian Council of the Blind. To learn more about White Cane Week festivities or events with your local chapter, head over to the national website, ccbnational.net, ccbnational.net. Net. Let's uh, bring in the roundtable to have a conversation from the world of sports. Alex Smythe, this was in the first segment of the show today, but uh, soccer fans in Canada got a little treat yesterday, or at least a treat to look forward to in a couple of years. Yeah, exactly, because it was announced that uh, the number of games that Canada would be hosting. And uh, to give a bit of a refresher, Brenda Molina Navidad has a story. Let's have a listen. Of the 104 games at the World Cup, seven will be played at Vancouver's BC Play Stadium and six at Toronto's BMO Field. Toronto will host the Canadian men in the opening game on Canadian soil on June 12th. The two cities will each stage five opening round games and a round of 32 knockout game, with Vancouver also hosting a round of 16 match. Like Canada, Mexico will also host 13 games, meaning the U.S. will stage the Lions' share of the action with 78 games at the expanded 48-team soccer showcase. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Needless to say, when Canada has its first match in Toronto, it's going to be absolutely electric. So I wanted to bring the topic to the round table and find out, are any of you guys going to shell out the money to try to get to this game? Ramya Muthan, I know you are a soccer fan. You, you play blind soccer yourself. Are you going to shell out the money to try to get to this game? I highly doubt it, Alex. I just not... Um, I have been to live games of all sorts and other than blind hockey, which I got to check out last year, I'd say it was, it's very tough as a, a blind or low vision person watching sports live. Unless yeah. you have, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I, I've literally stayed, uh, you know, being at games like a Raptors game, for example, and had the radio slash audio feed in my ear to actually know what's going on in real time, AKA, you know, seconds of delay. Um, so you're not necessarily getting the full picture, if you will, when you're at a live game, the energy is super fun. As you said, it's electric 
and it's fun because it's live, but you're not necessarily getting the actual gameplay the way you would if you were just listening to the game from home. So that's what I, those are the kinds of things I think of. And let's go with a friend for the vibes who knows what you need and is able to kind of keep you in, in you in touch with the game. Yeah, soccer is incredibly atmospheric and being there in a live crowd would certainly be worth something. But Alex, I, I would not chill at the dough for what it's going to cost to go see this game. Maybe picking up something on the secondary market for one of the smaller games or maybe even traveling to one of the bigger stadiums in the States for a smaller game because BMO Field in Toronto, they're, they're going to have to do a couple renovations here to put some more seats in, even to to get it over 30,000 people for the for these games uh, there's going to be stadiums in the states doing 80,000 85,000 90,000 so I wonder if it might actually be more affordable to sneak south of the border for maybe one of the lower tier games uh, Nazreen would you shell out the bucks to go pay for the uh, big Canada game the first game of the tournament uh, you start to question if it's really worth uh, paying for that seat when you r start rooting for the opposite team. And that's what I do at the Raptors game. Oh, gosh. <laughs> by accident. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, right when I hear people like, right when I hear that it's a, a score, that, that they got a, a score, I'm just like, I don't know which team this uh, who won at this point. But that's when I start to question, is it really worth it? Um, I oh, because only... you can't tell. I can't tell. Yeah. I can't tell. Okay. And it's really hard. Like I, I, it's really hard. And, and I start to ask the people around me, like what's going on at this point. <laughs> um, I don't pay that much for tickets. I have to admit. And if I do, I have to get like the good seats, good seats or nothing at all. Yeah. Because yeah. as you, as you said, Remia, it is challenging in general, just to, just to uh, get that uh, visual. But especially soccer. I feel like it would be so hard with fields soccer. Gargantuan. I can't even watch on TV. Yeah, it feels, mm -hmm. feels gargantuan. The yeah. angles are tough. Yeah, you're not going to get a good seat for a cheap price for this game. No chance, Nazreen. Uh, best course. of luck. Best of luck dreaming on that one. Uh, Alex, I, I think the three of us kind of come across as Debbie Downers here. I do think yeah. the price tag probably matters, but also just going to watch soccer at a bar is almost a million times more fun. Right? See, I, I don't think it is, though. Like, I always struggle watching sports in, like, a bar or restaurant. I, I find you can never actually hear the game going on because everyone is talking, everyone's loud. Like, I, I always struggle to focus in on the game when it's at a, a bar or a restaurant. I am willing, and I would be excited to be able to kind of put, pay the money to go and see this game live because, in my mind, this is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of event because it is on home soil. You're going to see your, your Canadian national team. The World Cup only happens once every four years. They're not going to be coming back to Canada anytime soon and, and to have a soccer team that's going to be competitive is a whole other matter at the same point. So that's why I view it. I'm willing to put, you know, maybe like hundreds, maybe close to $1,000 if it's uh, really enticing, if the matchup's going to be good because I can foresee this. This is never going to be something I'm going to ever have the chance to do again so I'm willing to do it yeah you know Alex I like I agree with you it's this once in a lifetime thing 
but it's a round robin game win or lose like it like if you told me this was the championship game Canada playing in a Canadian city for the World Cup for like the actual World Cup the final not the final in the aggregate of 48 teams involved I mean the last game which is being played in uh, Newark New Jersey by the way East Rutherford New Jersey uh, interesting uh, choice on that front uh, anyway nonetheless don't want to digress too far here I, I Alex I, I just think like for a round robin group stage game Oh, man, like it's because you're saying hundreds. It's going to be thousands. It's going to be thousands of dollars to go to this game. Yeah, 100 percent. Well, especially on, that, on the secondary market for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that, that, that's where it gets. That, that's where it just gets like a little bit tricky. Uh, so, Alex, you're not a fan of going to World Cup games at bars. I think bars are the best places to watch uh, World Cup games. I think bars are the best places uh, to do pretty much everything. Uh, Ramya, uh, when the World Cup rolls around, cities like Toronto, cities like Montreal, and listen, every city in the country lights up, especially those that have a stronger sense of multiculturalism. What's yeah. your favorite part about when the World Cup rolls around and how the GTA lights up? I guess it's just that it's not even necessarily like a pride of, you know, your country being represented or whatever, because that's not always the case. I think it's just the love for soccer really comes about. And I, I, I think soccer specifically versus other uh, sports, because it's so international, right? Like there's such a, um, a attraction with soccer. And so whenever it comes around, like especially if we're talking in Canada in these major cities people are just all over the place and in whatever way celebrating getting hyped and that kind of thing like even when I wasn't paying attention to any sports at all which was not that long ago by the way um, <laughs> I was like wow you know something's happening like you know people are hyped and people are just genuinely down to 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 share that if you will. Yeah, Nisreen, I remember during the Copa America in 2015, that's the big South American uh, tournament, I accidentally stumbled into a Columbia bar in Montreal, and the place was wall-to-wall yellow Columbia right? jerseys and people <laughs> losing their minds, and I had one of the most fun Friday nights of my life when I thought I was just going to a cruddy sports bar. Mm. See, I find it so remarkable when I see like a big group, just like just like that, Dave. Um, everybody's rooting for the same thing. Everybody's so obsessed and passionate. I use obsessed because a lot of people are obsessed with soccer, especially. Uh, nothing can compare to uh, soccer fans for sure. Um, but yeah, it, it's just so nice to see a lot of people just so passionate in the game and looking forward to something. I feel like yeah. Yeah. Um, everybody needs that that push to look forward to something. And when I see people just rooting for the game, I mean, it's something. It's yeah. something, and that's it's, what matters. It's just another, to me, and listen, I'm a white guy who's saying this, so like I acknowledge that maybe it sounds a little patronizing. It's just another reminder of like the tapestry that is Canadian culture, and I, yeah. and I love those moments. Alex, you get last word on this, the joy of the World Cup happening and how it breathes life into a city. Yeah, it, it gives everyone an opportunity to celebrate, you know, uh, their their 
countries, their uh, their their teams, their support, and 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 uh, shouted proudly. You know, you get the bars opening up earlier when the games are on early. You you get to like kind of check in, and you can always tell with if you're going out and about in the city when there's a game on, and you kind of pass a certain uh, a pocket where there's like um, whether it's a, a team bar that or a, a country kind of uh, linked bar that's celebrating or watching a game being uh, played. That's fun. Even just like the little things, like when they have all the flags and they're slowly starting like to yeah. take the flags yeah. down in front of the yeah. bars or you see them on the cars and stuff like when the team gets eliminated it's a fun little thing that everyone kind of feels like they're a part of even if they don't necessarily have a team exactly. that they're rooting for they can still enjoy that atmosphere yeah 100 percent. okay alex nazreen thank you ramya you don't get to go away just yet because you're coming back at 2 p.m eastern time with another edition of kelly and ramya what's coming up on the show all right, we're talking about Vancouver celebrating the new year, the Lunar New Year yeah, in February. Yeah, Year of the Dragon. Exactly. Is it? I actually didn't know. Okay, cool. And then um, uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff going on throughout the lower mainland and community reporter Carol Yaple's excited about uh, some of the stuff going on. She'll tell us more. Uh, also, we have our CNIB Smart Life segment today. This is when we just get updates on tech that they're featuring that you can get a hold of as a blind or low vision person. We're talking about the Come to Work program and the Accommodating Your World series that they're running. Uh, and on Know Your Rights, Daniel McLaughlin is joined by special guest Senator Kim Pate, who's an independent member of the Senate of Canada um, and a longtime human rights advocate. So we'll see what they're going to get into for conversation as well. Right on. Yeah. Lunar New Year, Year of the Dragon. I was invited to a party over the weekend at one of my favorite bars by the owner, Ashralia. I could not make it, Ramya, because I'm a loser. I have no friends. Nobody wanted to go with me. So I didn't what? get to go to that, that Lunar That's New Year's party at before. the Wing House. Oh. Uh, on a Saturday night, you don't want to walk. You don't want to walk in solo no. to a bar uh, alone on no. a Saturday night. That that that's just that's just throwing up the loser flag. You're you're much better just spending it by yourself. Uh, Ramya, have a lovely day. Talk to you tomorrow. Talk to you tomorrow, Dave. That is Ramya Amuthan. Coming up after the break, learn to run programs are growing in popularity. Ryan Van Praet explains why you should consider joining one. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's end the show with a little bit of cardio. I did make it to the gym this morning, but I did not do any cardio, just clanging and banging with the weights. Learn to run programs can be a great way for you to expand your fitness regime with some of that cardio. Ryan Van Praet has some details. Ryan is an inclusive sport advocate. Hey, good morning, Ryan. Nice to chat with you again. Morning, clanging and banging Dave. Clanging and banging Dave Brown, pushing some weights yeah. around. Hey, Ryan, yeah. I, it probably is said in the name here, but what's involved in a Learn to Run program? Yeah, well, it's somewhat self-explanatory, but I think the big thing is, you know, people think, well, how do I learn to run? There are, you know, there are some sort of staple things to learn. And so a Learn to Run program really is about giving you that, uh, hopefully not crash course, in, in all the things you need to know. <laughs> So, you know, training and apparel and pacing and creating, uh, you know, a routine. So it's, there's a lot of little things that go into any sport. And so I think it's just designed to make the journey a little less intimidating right from the start. 
Ryan, it's not uncommon as I'm making my way around uh, this neck of the woods close to a couple trails to see people running in groups. Why does running lend itself well as a group activity? Well, I think it's there's such a spectrum of it. And I think a learn to run is so really cool because we all have to start somewhere. You know, uh, I think people might look at marathoners or look at high performance athletes and go, oh, you're lucky. But they all started somewhere. You know, maybe it's in grade school, maybe it's later in life. And so you're, you're always going to find somebody at your own pace, at your own level. It's, it's such a widely inclusive activity, I think. Ryan, you are a top level. Uh, I'm going to call you elite. I know you don't like it when I do that, but you're an elite level runner. But for uh, an average Joe like me, who's not to run in a couple of years due to bad ankles and bad knees, how long does it take folks to maybe make some progress or realize that perhaps running is the kind of cardio for them? Well, that's the beautiful thing about learn to runs is you almost immediately make progress. You know, it's, it's the, it's, you know, if you can't walk, then you run kind of thing. And so you're slowly replacing the walking with running. And so you'll see really immediate gains. You know, you might walk 10 minutes and then run two. And then the next week you're walking nine minutes and running three. And so that's pretty immediate feedback, which you don't usually get when you get to sort of higher levels of, of performance. So I think it's such a confidence booster uh, and then combine that with finding people who are at that same pace and at that same starting level. It, it, it just is a, I don't know, it's just a pretty feel good activity, uh, especially as you get older in life when you think you can't, you know, old dogs can't learn new tricks, but I think they can. What's the disability lens here? I know for some folks running might seem like an utter no go unless it's on a treadmill simply as a safety concern. How do these programs bridge that gap? Yeah, and I think, not to harp on this again, but I think you're really going back to finding people that uh, are at that same spot as you. So if you're a brand new runner and, you know, you you just are completely scared and, and unsure, you might have that extra layer of having a disability, which might provide some obstacles, but the person beside you, you know, they're just equally as scared and unsure. And so you find that camaraderie in sort of your lack of fitness and your lack of understanding. And so you're actually going to be, I think, more... Uh, willing or more able to find somebody who's able to help you out, you know, act as that sighted guy, because they're not they're not really working on their own agenda, you know, of I need to hit this particular pace or, or time, they are just wanting to learn and essentially, you know, not embarrass themselves and, and they want to feel good about themselves. So you're you're more likely to find somebody I think, that is willing to start that journey with you. And so it really becomes a good opportunity to um, you know, start on the ground floor and really practice your self-advocacy skills with, with uh, you know, people who are, who are just like you. Ryan, you mentioned apparel and gear in your first answer. I want to give you a minute or two here to kind of clear out a smidge and give you a chance to geek out because I bet even for yourself at this point who's an expert runner, you just like hearing about any kind of running sock or any kind of new lightweight shoe or any kind of Gore-Tex jacket. Well, you were talking about the trails. So one of my uh, personal goals this year to continue to challenge myself is to do a, a, a trail ultra marathon. And there might be a lot of walking in that, but that's kind of the cool thing with ultra running is there's also lots of walking in it too. So yeah, there's tons of gear. You can have your road shoes, your trail shoes, which is just more grippy. Uh, I bought a hydration vest. So it looks kind of like a, like a, yeah, like one of those old Western leather cowboy vests, but, it, <laughs> but it's made of, it's made of mesh and it holds lots of water and lots of goodies and stuff. So it's, it's always fun to find the new, the new gadgets. And I think, you know, finding the trails nearby, as you mentioned, um, 
just go out and walk, just go out and explore. Maybe you'll get inspired and want to break into a jog and run with your arms in the air like Phoebe from Friends. <laughs> go for it, whatever makes you happy. And then when you get tired, walk, right? It's just about being out there, uh, being out there in an included environment. And then, yeah, if you can geek out and find some fun gear, um, that's always uh, a, a bonus too. Ryan, there's no doubt that running can be really excellent for your overall health, uh, including the mental health. So I, I don't want to be too flippant in the way that I ask this question, but I love this idea as someone like yourself who's running marathons, and now you're saying, well, 2024 is the year I'm really going to challenge myself with an ultra marathon. Kind of uh, as you get better and better at this, that chasing the high, to me, that's one of the demons of fitness, uh, even as a weightlifter. Oh, Okay, do I have to buy some new weights for my for my uh, for my building's gym because I'm already maxing out the bench press bar? Well, I look at it through the lens of you know I'm a big believer in can you know and, and what can I do? And then there's times when you're frustrated as a person with a disability. You know I'm running on the treadmill more than I I'd like, but you know what I can go and walk. I can go get my cane, go walk on a trail. What can I control? And I could walk for a really long time. Maybe I could you know run for a little bit too. And so I'm always looking at proving to myself you know, what is possible. And it's less about time. It's more about uh, punishment <laughs> and self-punishment in a way. But yeah, it's just, you're never too old to try and, and expand yourself physically, mentally. Um, that's to me the essence of life. And so I just enjoy it. And it doesn't have to be high performance, just as, you know, there's so many amazing things around you. Just get out and explore. Ryan, I'm switching gears on you here with about a minute and a half left on the clock. I want to ask you the daily poll question. It's been a running thread throughout the show about assistive technology and the aesthetics of assistive technology, talking about a navigational device that looks a little bit like a vacuum, talking about the Apple headset pro or the Apple pro, yeah. vision pro headset. Ryan, how much does the aesthetics of assistive tech influence whether or not you'll use it a lot, a little or not at all at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook? Yeah, that's that's tricky. I think it comes with sort of that um, comfort in yourself sometimes. I think you, you have that same stigma around the white cane. Some people don't want to use it. But I think when you kind of have that comfort level and say, you know what, I'm just out here living my life, using the tools that I that I have to live my life, I think the stigma, the aesthetics become less important. For me, I just say own it, right? I'm kind of goofy. I'm kind of weird, but I own it. And and that gives me the freedom just to go out and wear whatever I want, use whatever tech I want, just to go after the goals that I want. So uh, I think just find that comfort in yourself. And yeah, it doesn't really matter. If you have the tool that works for you, use it and Go live your best life. I think that's a beautiful message. And now we can all run out and go get our mesh hydration vests. Ryan, thank yes. you for this. Have a lovely day. Yeah, you too. Thanks. <laughs> that's inclusive sport advocate Ryan Van Prate talking all about running and a little bit of fashion. That's all the time there is for the show today until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv.
The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.